This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm a thinly fictionalized version of Kevin McLenathan. And I'm a thinly fictionalized version of Sarah Welch Larson. So, Sarah, since we are not actually Kevin and Sarah, but are actually legally distinct metafictional simulacra of ourselves, would now be a good time to really let out the criticism and tell each other what we really don't like about the other person? Only if it means that I get to tell you just how much I dislike ranked lists. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, Since I am a thinly fictionalized version of myself, I have no problem with that whatsoever. (laughs) Listeners, we are going to be doubling down on uh, self-reflexive auto-critiques for this week's episode. We're going to be talking about Jafar Panahi's latest film starring himself, No Bears. And then we're going to be following that up with our watch list pick, Bob Fosse's sort of semi-autobiographical 1979 musical, All That Jazz. And it is a good thing that I'm a thinly fictionalized version of myself because now I can do jazz hands. It's showtime, folks, on episode 366 of Seeing and Believing. So Sarah, I think this might be a good time for us to to put away the lightly fictionalized versions of ourselves just because that might be a little bit of a headache to maintain for the entirety of the episode but maybe you know there will be a director's cut of this <laughs> recording someday <laughs> where we really you know go all in on the self-reflexivity and meta fictional nature of things i'm sure our producer jonathan will have some additional material for you know deleted scenes and things like that but i agree a return to reality is probably the best for discussions about the movies that we're going to be talking about this week yeah i mean the, they're heady enough as it is so we'll go easy on ourselves but we did want to make sure to make time for one of the films that came out kind of quietly considering the stature of the director who who made it mm-hmm. last year. We're talking, of course, about Jafar Panahi and his new film, No Bears. So Panahi has been carefully crafting self-reflexive works about artistic, personal, and political freedom for the past three decades, despite his oppression at the hands of the Iranian government. In No Bears, as in many of his recent films, Panahi is playing a fictionalized version of himself, in this case relocated to a rural border town to remotely direct a new film in nearby Turkey, the story of which comes to sharply mirror disturbing events that begin to occur around him. As he struggles to complete the film, Panahi finds himself thrust into the middle of a local scandal, confronting the opposing poles of tradition and progress, city and country, belief and evidence, and the universal desire to reject oppression. Sarah, that synopsis I just read was actually the official one from the publicists. Um, So it's only scratching the surface, arguably, Mm -hmm. of what Panahi is up to with this film. So 
what do you make of everything else that's going on in <laughs> No Bears to get our discussion started? Oh, man. I mean, there's so much that can be made of. This movie is such a rich text, and it's one that I keep going back to and trying to excavate additional meaning from. And it's not too hard. Once you just start to scratch the surface, there's a lot of deeper meaning. And the deeper you go, the more complex the movie becomes, which is remarkable because it feels very simplistic on its face. It's about a fictionalized version of Jafar Panahi, as you'd mentioned, sort of remotely directing a movie that's taking a place that's being shot just across the border over in Turkey about these two lovers who are trying to escape and make a better life for themselves. Um, at the same time, he's also negotiating relationships with the people in the village that he has sort of retreated to and stumbles into a, a level of complexity and societal complexity that he doesn't seem to have been aware that he's fallen into until after it's a little bit too late. And I think a lot of this movie is about the um, both those parallel journeys over in Turkey and then also in this remote village in Iran. It's also about the idea of boundaries and borders and what we do to cross them and then what we do in order to maintain them. Um, there's kind of this repeated line amongst all of the villagers where every time they enter somebody else's property, they'll just call out permission, permission, um, permission to enter, permission to leave. There's a lot of leave taking. And then um, that that appears to be relatively... Um, I don't know, congenial or just kind of something that you just say in order to be polite until all of a sudden it definitely isn't just something that's meant to be polite. It's something that's used to sort of be the mortar to hold together this little microcosm of society. Um, and I was just kind of struck by how deceptively simple just that one simple line was and then just how deceptively simple the rest of the movie is. So, Kevin, I'm curious to know how you felt about this movie and what you took away from it, too. So... This is a movie that is about a topic that I kind of find endlessly fascinating, which is um, I'm always kind of interested in works of art that are about works of art mm -hmm. or about the creative process in some way. Um, it, it's really interesting to me to watch an artist kind of take seriously and grapple with the the cost of creating um, the the personal costs, like you know how much blood, sweat, and tears they pour into their creative pursuit, um, but also the the cost kind of to the world around them, like what what kind of collateral damage is caused by a uh, an overtly political filmmaker like Panahi going about his business the way he does, kind of playing chicken with the Iranian <laughs> government and the terms of the the ban that they've put up put on him. Mm -hmm. um, and the the ultimate question of is the price that you pay for good art worth the good art itself like mm -hmm. what how do you go about squaring that circle mm -hmm. and no bears is maybe the i mean that that that's something that panahi kind of is on the margins of a lot of his later work, but in this film, No Bears, he really confronts it head on where it's not just, well, what's the cost to me of trying to make art when I'm 
working with these strictures that have been put on me by the government, but also what's the cost of the people around me? What's the cost to my collaborators? Um, what is the cost to just kind of bystanders who could be uh, seen as harboring me or abetting me in some way? Mm -hmm. um, and what's, what's the cost of me kind of parachuting into somebody else's life and uh, – using like taking pictures of them you uh, filming them using their lives as my raw materials and that's something that uh we see very early on in this film where he uh is the the host who is putting him up the the person who is renting a room to him mm -hmm. he gives him a camera and he says like look just um film what this social event you're going to just film whatever you see you know i'm not going to give you any directions but here's a camera i've turned it on just walk around and point it at whatever you think is interesting and that kind of touch it's it's reflective both of kind of panahi's sort of blithe uh interest in the people around him and also uh as the film goes on and unfolds we kind of learn that there might be ways in which that kind of attention isn't entirely welcome mm -hmm. and how he doesn't fully appreciate that at the beginning and how that changes at the end, I think is a central tension. It's really interesting to explore. Yeah, that moment where um, he hands the camera to his host, Ganbar, played by Vahid Mubasheri, um, I think is kind of telling because it feels as though he's treating all of this as sort of just raw materials, but it's also an expression of genuine curiosity. I think he means well, or his character means well when he hands off the camera. He's just interested in seeing different parts of this village's life, but he also has additional work that he needs to do. And so he's going to sort of insert himself into village life, not directly, not in person. He's not going to impose himself on this ceremony that he's asked his host to film. But at the same time, he is also still imposing a version of himself on the ceremony simply by putting the camera in there. It kind of feels a little bit like that, um, the Heisenberg idea where when you observe something, you fundamentally change the nature and the state of the thing that you're observing. Um, and I think it's also telling that almost immediately after Gambar returns that camera and Panahi starts going through the film and the footage that Gambar has taken. Um, he kind of embarrasses his host almost right away because his host inadvertently recorded a conversation that he would much rather not have had Panahi listen to. And Panahi doesn't seem to mind it all that much. It, it seems as though the cost of this sort of art is a little bit of embarrassment, and that feels like something that he at least is comfortable with, even though he's made his host deeply uncomfortable and embarrassed. But as the film goes on, there are additional slights and um, just sort of uh, crossings of boundaries that don't really look like boundaries when you first see them. And then you realize much later, oh, this was a very serious offense that this character caused. And he had no idea at the time. He didn't mean any offense or any harm. And he has no intention of taking anything back because he didn't intend that harm. But at the same time, you're kind of caught in this tension of um, what was intended versus what was perceived. And then also that tension of progress and understanding versus um, just deep-seated tradition that has a lot of meaning and is very clearly important to the people who live in this village as well. Um, I don't know, like, it's it's delicate, and at the same time, I really appreciate that Panahi is, really isn't letting himself off the hook here. It feels as though he's the one who is 
the most to blame for any of this that happens in this movie, and he's not going to try to explain away why any of it happened. He's also not going to try to hold himself up as like, he's he's not crucifying himself, but he's also not going to say that he's not at fault for anything that happens throughout the course of this film. And I find that fascinating, especially because he's playing a very loosely um, fictionalized version of himself. But the line between the fictional Jafar Panahi and the actual director Jafar Panahi really feels like it's an extremely fuzzy one to me. Yeah, I, and I appreciate that he walks that balance very well. I liked how this didn't feel like uh, a self-flagellation, like him, mm-hmm. you know, just tearing his clothes about, you know, oh, I might have caused some some harm somewhere and being, you know, beating his breast about it, so to speak. Um, at the same time, he, but he also takes it seriously. Yes. And that is a tricky balance to walk, especially when for, you know, when, when you're making a movie about yourself, being aware of the possibility of falling on either side and having a clear enough view of yourself to present a plausible <laughs> fictionalization of your, of your true self while also not taking that fictionalization as license to kind of like play up certain things to make yourself look especially good or especially bad. Mm-hmm. That's pretty tricky. And I I think that it's a sign of his artistic discipline that he's able to uh, walk that balance so finely. And that's maybe fitting for a movie that kind of is about walking along borders. There's a, a very pointed scene where... Um, Panahi, he is living in this border town between Iran and Turkey, mm-hmm. and uh, his cinematographer uh, comes over the border and says, like, look, I know how to get you to smuggle you over the border. It is possible. Let me show you <laughs> where you would cross if we were to do this. And they go right up to the edge of the border mm-hmm. and look over, and then uh, Panahi is standing literally on that line and he retreats back yes. in, into Iran. And that, I think, is is such a powerful scene. And it says a lot about, um, I, I mean, it says a lot about borders, obviously, how they can be really abstracted and not entirely real except for the power we give them. Mm-hmm. It's also a way for Panahi to, uh, again, kind of offer a bit of a critique for himself that his uh, his political problems and the ways in which he's kind of working under these strictures it almost seems like he's he's suggesting about those things that he almost he doesn't want to leave them behind there are complex reasons for him staying in iran and working in the way he does and whether or not the audience is privy to what those what the specifics are of those he hints at the fact that there are complex reasons there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's fascinating to think about and consider. Yeah, I love that scene that you mentioned. Um, it's a night scene, and it's it's shot quite beautifully. The, um, the cinematographer for the actual movie No Bears is Amin Jafari. Um, and within the film, um, Jafar Panahi and his cinematographer Riza, played by Riza Hidari, um, a lot of blurring, I think, of identities and a lot of use of, of actual names with the actors, which I think helps with kind of this this image of, well, is this art real or is it fake or does it actually affect the people who are involved in making it, which I'm very sure it does. Um, 
But that night scene where the two kind of climb to the top of a hill and you can see them sort of silhouetted against a very dark blue sky, um, it's really gorgeous and it's also very simple looking from the outside. And then um, when you get to the reverse shot, there's a lot of rocky terrain underfoot underneath both of these men's feet as they're looking out over the villages um, on the other side of the border. And Panahi explicitly asks his cinematographer, like, where is the border? And the cinematographer says, you are literally standing exactly on it. And he doesn't just retreat from the border. It's almost as though he's flinching away from that boundary. Because I think that he does respect that boundary. He knows that it's there. He knows the importance of that boundary and then also the importance of intentionally crossing it or choosing to go over to the other side. And I think, like you said, Panahi is someone who is, I think, indelibly tied to his home country. And I think that he, for better and for worse, is willing to make a lot of very strong political statements with his art. And he's not willing to make those statements and then go and retreat somewhere else. I, th I think that he wants to see through the consequences of those statements and of his art. And I admire him very much for that decision. And I get why it's very complicated about like, well, if you could leave, why wouldn't you? And in, in this case, I think both within the fiction of the film and then within real life, this kind of feels like a statement that says, I'm here and I'm here to stay. And you can't take this away from me because I've been a part of this country and a part of this art making world for so long that what's been said has been said. And then the consequences are going to be what they are. It's tricky because so much of that dynamic is something that's it, it's it's something that could easily be dispensed with, right? Like he doesn't have to uh, continue uh, on as a filmmaker in this vein. He doesn't have to. Um, he, it would be theoretically possible for him to uh, leave his country behind and move to a place where his where his personal safety is more assured. Mm -hmm. um, it would be it. It's. Uh, something that his need to create art is is something that he almost he doesn't have to have he doesn't have to make it but he also kind of has to make it mm -hmm. and that kind of tension of of abstracted things that uh, are lent weight uh, by a person is kind of what the title is all about. So there's a scene where uh, Panahi is is walking. Uh, at night through the streets of this village he's staying in. He's he's proceeding to a kind of a town hall meeting of sorts. Mm -hmm. And uh, a citizen of the town says, hey, um, why don't I walk with you? There are bears out here. You know, it might not be safe. It's better if we go together. And so then they walk and they're having a conversation uh, about kind of the, the local uh, cultural dynamics that have kind of been... Um, showing their spikes a little bit for, for Panahi. And at the end of the walk, uh, the, the guys, the guy points Panahi in the right direction for the town hall meeting. And Panahi says, aren't you going to come with me? What about the bears? And the guy says, there aren't any bears. Mm -hmm. I just told you there were bears so that you would, you know, walk with me and listen to me. <laughs> and that is, it's a great little scene. And it's so suggestive again of the fact that sometimes there, there are fictions that are maintained because um, either, that makes certain interactions easier or because that's simply what is needed in order for people to make connections uh, or to exert influence on each other or to 
do any host of less savory things when we're talking about political power. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that Panahi has a light touch in sequences like that that I really appreciated. There's a level of simplicity to this movie that I think belies just how deeply complex it is at the same time. Um, to kind of underline the same point about their, the fact that there are no bears, in fact, within this village. Um, when he first comes to the border, Panahi asks his cinematographer, if crossing the border is so simple, why is it so complicated to do this? Because he has to go through a lot of different steps in order to even be able to make it to that borderline, even though he and his cinematographer have seen no other people on the road up until that point. They go up a dirt road, they have to hide their car, they have to climb up the side of this hill, they have to wait for a specific signal. And at the same time, they probably could just walk across that border if they really truly wanted to, but the consequences for doing so are so severe and they just don't seem very obvious just from the outset. And I think that that question of if it's so simple, why is it so complicated to do this kind of belies a lot of the similar tensions that Panahi is dealing with back in the village that he's been residing in as well. If it were so simple for him to just simply reside here as a guest, why is he being hassled by the locals for taking photographs? If it's so simple for him to take a photograph, why is supposedly, allegedly taking a picture of a young couple, something that is so deeply fraught that it's going to color the rest of his time there. Um, I think it has a lot to do with a lot of the the ingrained ideas and preconceptions that we come to a specific situation just based on our own cultural context. And he really is, as a character, he's an outsider here, and he doesn't know the nest of hornets that he's stumbled into. And at the same time, he is also very much the instigator in a lot of the incidents that are happening in this village too. And it's not just black and white cause and effect either. It's it's a very complex web. And once you start to pull at one of those threads, the whole thing just sort of starts to either fall apart, depending on who you are, or even tighten around you if, if you're somebody else within this situation. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about the, you know, kind of the, the political and cultural uh, themes that are swirling around in this film. We haven't actually talked about the art, though, mm. um, which um, I'm I'm curious to know your thoughts about the, the film within a film that Panahi is making here, because for me, that was the, the one minor reservation I had about this film is that unlike films that of Panahi's that I've really enjoyed in the past few years, I loved Taxi, I loved Three Faces, um, I, I, which are, again, like, you know, he's in front of the camera as well as directing things from behind the camera mm -hmm. um in no bears the film within a film or the kind of the the meta thing going on here uh having to do with this filmmaking felt a little bit too neat in the way that the events in the film uh paralleled the events that are happening to panahi mm. or fictionalized panahi in this in this picture so it didn't quite sit as right with me as some of his earlier films have, but I'm wondering if maybe you have a, a defense that would be convincing to me. I don't know if I'll be able to convince you because I think I'm still wrestling with that film within a film and the relationship there as well. I think for the most part, it does work for me, largely because Panahi is directing this film within a film at a remove. 
And that necessitates a couple of really interesting formal choices on the part of the cinematography and then also in, in within the storytelling itself. So this film within a film is about a couple who are trying to get a hold of some passports so that they can leave, so that they can go elsewhere, so they they can build a new life for themselves. They've been waiting for a decade for these passports uh, to arrive and, and they just have not been able to have the chance to leave until this point. And within the film within a film, there's some additional added layers of meta context where you understand that this is life and death serious for the actors within the film. It's not just something that's happening to these characters. There, there are real world implications for the events of the film within a film on the actors within that film. Um, it kind of layers a little bit like a nesting doll. And I think that it's actually really crucial for Panahi to be directing this film basically via Zoom, because it kind of puts him at the emotional remove for him to be able to move those actors around, tell them to hit their marks, tell them not to overact something, because he's not actually in that physical space with them there. He's not actually a part of their lives in a way that everybody else is around them. And so I think that it does a good job of underlying underlining the idea that directing a film is also still serious business like you're making art but you're also you're you're laying your own heart bare and you may also be laying the heart of the other artists around you bare as well and I think the piece that kind of made it sort of snap together for me was every time Panahi called cut Somebody would go and they would look directly into the camera and they would do a direct to camera address, but it wasn't to the audience, it was to Panahi specifically, kind of treating the director as though he is both audience and creator of this scene. And I think that level of control and engagement was something that kind of forces you to engage in a little bit more of a give and take than just something where the movie has a character turn and break the fourth wall and just break the fourth wall towards the audience. That kind of feels like a one-way relationship to me. But here it feels as though Panahi is both talking to himself and giving his collaborators a chance to engage with him as well on almost equal terms. So that's that's kind of where I've landed on it within this film within a film piece. It still doesn't fully fit together neatly. And I think I like that a little bit more than if it had been all clean cut, all easy pieces. Like a lot of this still feels very rough. It, it feels like a shoestring budget movie, essentially. And in some places, you can't really tell where the film within a film ends and where the film begins and then where real life itself begins. Like they all kind of bleed into each other. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of what what my minor issue with with that is, isn't so much that it feels rough, but almost it feels too neat. Hmm. Like it, it felt to me like, the the ways in which um, the the narrative of the film within a film is all about you know immig- you know emigration and borders and the life or death stakes that can sometimes underlie these things um, paralleled a little bit too closely kind of the things that are spontaneously happening to Panahi in this village from which he's remotely directing that film mm. um and and that just felt a little bit like it 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 felt a little bit like the authorial hand was kind of nudging things a little bit too too much it felt a little artificial mm. and in a way that 
maybe wasn't as productive for me. I did a key into that uh, scene where one of the actresses kind of breaks character and looks at Panahi and kind of berates him through the camera because that is kind of a a very easy way for a director to sort of like really goose the audience. Like, I'm going to have a character address you directly and you can't move. And you're it's sort of like almost like a gun's pointed at you. Like, you're going to sit here and you're going to listen to what this actor is having to say. But in the context of No Bears, Panahi's the one who's got that, you know, figurative gun pointed at him. Mm. He's the one who's going to sit and listen to what's being told to him. And it's one of his collaborators. It's not just a fictional character. It's somebody who has very real skin in the game. Mm -hmm. And I did really appreciate that, even if the device of the film within the film overall maybe felt a little bit artificial to me. I feel like it would have felt a little bit artificial, or it would have felt more artificial to me if the film within a film had been pulled off more or less without a hitch. But I think once things really start to fall apart, that's when it really started to work for me because there is only so much will that you can impose on a piece of art. It's going to get out and it's going to do what art is going to do, which is speak to people in ways that you never really fully expect it to speak to them. And it will take on additional meaning as different audiences engage with it. And that's a much more positive takeaway than I think you you actually get from this movie. But at the same time, I, I feel like um, that's something that Panahi is aware of and he's not going to try to control so he's not going to try to control that film within a film quite so much at least not towards the very end so for me i I think it's it works and it's growing on me more and more as i continue to think about it so last year uh around this time you and i reviewed asgar farhadi's a hero Mm -hmm. and uh, we unfortunately got to it after we had done our, our best of the year episode a couple weeks prior. And A Hero ended up being my very favorite film of that year. Mm-hmm. So I, I shamefacedly had to like do some retconning of my top 10 list afterwards. <laughs> so my, my question for you is, since this film, since No Bears is growing on you, mm-hmm. um, do you find yourself uh, – uh, moving it up in your in your estimation or where where would it fall for you if we were to redo that episode today it's funny i actually um i actually saw no bears during like christmas break and so i feel like i underrated it the first time that i watched it and then i went back and i rewatched it specifically for this episode and i kept catching things that i had missed that first time before and as i was watching it i realized like Oh, yeah, I I completely discounted like certain things about this movie. I liked it fine the first time around, but I think I loved it the second time around. I'm not going to say that it's growing up in my ranking because I'm <laughs> going to be stubborn about the rankings, rankings thing. Rankings, of course. <laughs> but it is one that at least right now it's it's pretty far up there in terms of movies from 2022 that I saw. So it's a strong film for it, sure. Yeah, it is. Listeners, that is our review of Jafar Panahi's No Bears. It is unfortunately not available in a lot of places around the United States right now. Lots of major metro areas kind of have it in limited release, but it's not currently on streaming or playing in theaters in other markets. But if you do get a chance to see it later on down the line, we are always interested in hearing uh, your thoughts. So if you're listening to this, maybe a couple months down the line, have had a chance since then to see 
no bears and want to share your thoughts on it. We're super interested in hearing about that, but we'll leave it there for now. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about Bob Fosse's All That Jazz here in a second. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Welcome to The Conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. And Sarah, before we proceed to the Twitter question for this week, I did want to offer listeners another avenue, maybe, for them to share their thoughts and keep that conversation going. Mm -hmm. Uh, Recently, we, by which I mean you, Sarah, (laughs) have uh, put together an official Seeing and Believing Letterboxd account. So if you go to letterboxd.com and search for See Believe Pod, same as our Twitter handle. You can find our official uh, profile there where we are in the process of uploading the entire backlog of films that have been reviewed on the air mm-hmm. and uh, maybe uh, maybe some top 10 lists of, of various kinds. Yeah, we've definitely got the top 10 of last year uploaded. So Kevin, yours is ranked in the proper order with Thank nope you. in its proper place. Appreciate it. Mine has no ranking because uh, no rankings. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, our Letterboxd account is there. It's up. It's available. Please come follow us on there. Maybe I'll throw out those Twitter questions in Letterboxd form at some point as well. There'll be links to the podcast episodes and we hope for you to join the conversation there too. Yeah. And uh, if you're not on Letterboxd already, uh, highly recommend it. Seeing and believing seal of approval from both co-hosts. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So Kevin, speaking of the conversation and keeping that conversation going, um, I did ask a question on Twitter this week um, saying basically just this weekend on the pod, we're going to be covering No Bears and we're going to be pairing it with Bob Fosse's All That Jazz. So we wanted to know, what's your favorite movie about art? There's some other connective tissue between those two movies. I'm sure we'll get into it when we talk about All That Jazz as well. But I was just interested to know what listeners had to say about what their favorite movie about art was. Um, We heard from Ron Sturry, who said, Loving Vincent, with both wonderful voice acting and dazzling animation of Van Gogh's portraits and landscapes. Captivating. I mean, the visuals in that film are pretty stunning. (laughs) Worthy of a film about Van Gogh, for sure. Definitely. Yep. Um, I'm curious to know, Kevin, what's your favorite movie about art? I mean, part of me wanted to say the Coen brothers' Barton Fink, just because I love the the ending where John Goodman's just running down a flaming hallway hollering, I'll show you the life of the mind. <laughs> um, but I, I couldn't truthfully say that's my very favorite. My very favorite would probably be Milos Forman's uh, Amadeus, oh, which I think is another thing that really interests me about movie, but movies about art um, or, or stories about art in general is just the idea of just where art comes from, where it originates from. Um, and kind of the interesting thing about Amadeus is the scandal of essentially God giving such great talent to uh, somebody who seems so scandalously unworthy of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really love how Salieri in that film, he is destroyed by his envy rather than just taking delight in the art that Mozart presents. 
uh, he allows it to turn him bitter. And I, I, I find the characterizations fascinating. I find the impl- things that it implicitly says about art to be fascinating. And it's just a sumptuous bit of filmmaking on top of all that. So I love Amadeus. You've got me sold. Amadeus is one of those movies that's just been on my watch list for forever, but I've never actually seen it. So that may have to be one that we end up talking about on the podcast. I am a little sad that when we uh, talked about Tar uh, late last year that I don't think it was my turn to do the watch list pick for that episode because if it had been... We would have watched on Amadeus for sure. We definitely would have and should have, and I'll catch up with it for sure. Um, We also asked our producer, Jonathan Claussen, about this, and he gave us a movie that neither of us had heard of before, which feels like a first, maybe something also to add to the watch list, potentially. Um, He mentioned The Maiden Heist, starring William H. Macy, Morgan Freeman, and Christopher Walken in a delightful, plot-hole-filled heist movie, which honestly sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, I watched the the trailer for that, and I just... from on the evidence of the cast alone, I was like, how, how is it possible that I have not even heard of this movie at all? It, it did go straight to streaming. It didn't get a theatrical release, but still. You it's know, a fun pick. Those three leads, come on. Uh, it's a movie about uh, uh, various employees at an art museum putting together a heist to steal some art, of course. it's uh, It seems like a lot of fun. So maybe I'll catch up with it one of these days. Definitely. Um, I also picked... A movie myself and i don't know if this is coming at it a little bit too sideways but mine is probably columbus specifically mm. about the power of architecture as art in a human life um we both obviously love Koganada's after yang which came out last year if you haven't had the chance to check out his first movie columbus it's it's well worth seeking out especially as it contemplates the the structure of the buildings that surround its characters as they contemplate their own place in the world and then also in the place that they've been kind of stuck in up until that point. I don't think that's coming at the question sideways at all. I think that's a fantastic pick. And architecture, I feel like you don't see that many movies about it. Like There should be more. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense why there wouldn't be more. It seems so... <laughs> Uh, obviously well fitted to the to the format. So yeah, good pick. I want a documentary about Gene Gang now. Uh, for those not in the know, uh, Gene Gang is a an architect here in Chicago who does some pretty incredible work. City of Architecture, maybe something that would be worth doing. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So, Sarah, uh, we're going to be taking a little bit of a leap, at least geographically, from the Iran of Jafar Panahi to kind of the glitzy uh, Broadway milieu of all that jazz Mm -hmm. with this week's Watchlist segment. So the Watchlist segment is, of course, the part of the show where one host picks a film that the other host hasn't seen. We watch it together and then talk about it. Uh, Sarah, you picked the 1979 All That Jazz, directed by Bob Fosse. Um, And this is another semi-autobiographical film from a director feeling in a self-critical mood. In this case, Bob Fosse directs a story about a Broadway director and choreographer named Joe Gideon, played here by Roy Scheider, who senses the cold reality of his own death waiting in the wings and yet still can't bring himself 
himself to pump the brakes on a lifestyle filled with workaholism, drug abuse, and womanizing. To him, the artistic work is everything, but what does that mean when he's confronted with the prospect of nothing in the form of his own oblivion. If that sounds dark, well, that's because it is. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but uh, one of the interesting things about this film is that uh, Fosse uses the the glitz and jazz hands of Broadway entertainment as a counterpoint to that darkness. So, Sarah, since this was your pick, I want to hear you unpack your reason for picking this a little bit more. What do you make of that of that darkness and, and what appeals about it to you with this film? It's funny... <laughs> I love thinking about all that jazz. I think it is an incredibly good movie. And then every time I watch it, I keep asking myself, why do I enjoy this movie? Because I'm not entirely sure that I actually enjoy the act of watching it other than the sublime dance sequences. There are so many good dance sequences. Bob Fosse also choreographed um, everything in this film. And it, it really shows like you can tell that it's a Fosse movie, not just from the writing, but also from the way that people are able to express themselves physically within this film. It's a movie that I like to wrestle with because I think that Fosse really is wrestling with and also sort of predicting his own death and his own mortality um, in a way that I'm not entirely sure he is able to come to terms with. And I think it's really fascinating to watch somebody use their art to try to grapple with a very real world problem and attempt to come up with an answer for it and kind of come up short and then still follow through and make a brilliant piece of art anyway. I think the crux of this movie is that there's a scene about halfway through where Joe Gideon has been asked to stage a musical and he very clearly looks down on the artistic merits of this musical. He does not appreciate the songwriting. He thinks a lot of it is is not great. And he's also kind of coming up short in terms of his ability to stage and choreograph the dance numbers for it. And he taps into some really dark and ugly places in order to be able to stage those numbers and try to push them to a point where they are what he believes to be have. He tries to push them to a point where he believes that they actually have that artistic merit that he's kind of striving for and holding himself towards. And the number happens, it's about five or six minutes of just an actual musical number and it's kind of sorted and it's a little bit ugly and it's definitely pushing a lot of the lyrics of the song into places where the songwriter did not intend for them to go and yet it's still brilliant art and everybody else around him agrees that it is brilliant art and that they've also lost the family market for this musical that they're trying to market we can talk about the economics of this movie as well i, I think there's some pretty interesting threads in there too but He's kind of castigating himself for being a real jerk for doing this to this other artist's artwork and at the same time recognizing that he is capable of pushing his art to incredible heights while also being a terrible person while he's going about it. There's a lot of stuff that's kind of tense and difficult to grapple with and really ugly and really beautiful all at the same time kind of wrapped up in like this gigantic smoke ring of all of the cigarettes that everybody's chain smoking while they're going about it. And it's not a world that I necessarily want to live in. It's not a bunch of characters that I want to spend too much time with, other than a couple of the side characters who we'll probably get to, too. 
but it's still beautiful and I want to wrestle with that. So that's kind of what brings me to appreciating all that jazz, liking it from a distance, really disliking parts of it as I'm watching them. So Kevin, you're new to this movie and I'm curious to know where it sits with you. Yeah, uh, I appreciated this movie. I don't know that I can say that I can love it. And I think part of my, if I have a reservation about it, it kind of begins and ends with the the self-reflexivity and, and the self-critique, I guess, that Fosse is engaging in with this picture. We talked a little bit about how uh, Panahi with no bears walks a very fine line between being clear-eyed about his own flaws and his own culpability uh, in making what he's making, um, while also not not being too forgiving of that and what and also not too self-flagellating about it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like with all that jazz, at least on this first viewing, it's uh, obviously my first viewing and I haven't had a chance to revisit it. Um, I don't know that Fosse quite manages that same balance. I feel like the way that uh, Scheider plays the Fosse stand-in and the the way that even that he's written um, and sort of framed by the by the camera and by the reactions from other characters, it feels like Fosse is very, very clear-eyed about the fact that this character is not a good person, is in fact a bad person, and mm-hmm. it does in fact hurt people around him, but also that he's not really that sorry about it. Yes. And that doesn't sit right with, with me. I feel like if you're going to make a movie that it does really double down on the, I'm going to present an unflattering portrait of myself, or at least a thinly fictionalized unflattering portrait. Um, you, you have to grapple with a lot of, uh, a lot of things and maybe have the discipline to allow yourself to be ugly. Hmm. And I feel like there's a lot of energy in this picture where Joe Gideon is, He's a bad person, but he's also kind of a scamp. And Hmm. it feels to me a little bit like the movie is letting him off the hook more than it should, given the lacerating darkness presence elsewhere in other ways in the in the film Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i agree with you i i don't think he quite manages that balance especially towards the end there's a couple of sequences and what's termed the hospital hallucination scene that the dancing is very good the choreography is very good i feel like it it slides a little bit almost maudlin in places towards the end of the film where it does feel as though he's he's both flagellating himself and saying ain't I a stinker (laughs) and those two things I don't think can coexist particularly well they sort of rub shoulders and occasionally they get really really close to being where I think they're supposed to be but the movie doesn't quite stick that landing or at the very least it's bobbling a little bit too much before it does manage to stick the landing. I do maintain that the final shot of this movie is a knockout and it knocked me off my feet the first time I saw this movie and it always knocks me off my feet every single time I rewatch it. I mean, if you're going to like, I I liked the the ending quite a bit as well. I mean, spoiler alert for a movie that's pushing 50 Mm -hmm. um it's uh it's a scene of joe gideon in a body bag getting zipped up and then 
there's no business like show business plays yeah. and then you know smash cut to black you know that's that's a that's a gutsy ending and credit where it's due i think it really works mm-hmm. and i i feel like if the film is successfully critical of anything it's not so much of joe gideon or fossey it's about the the worship of the limelight the the worship of show business itself mm-hmm. show business comes in for a real um blistering appraisal in mm-hmm. in this film not so not just so much of the system but just of the way that um somebody who chooses to make that their life and sort of the water they swim in how that can can warp them and hurt them in in very unfortunate ways that are not so much a question of exploitation just so much as a question of not everybody's going to make it and the people who don't make it are going to be hurt by the by their failure Mm -hmm. very deeply hurt and i feel like that's where for me at least the the film was at strongest is when it really you know digs in deep to that dynamic that felt very honest to me very clear-eyed maybe in a way that the the critique of the main character didn't mm-hmm. yeah um i think for me part of it is there the there is no business like show business emphasis on the business part a little bit um there is that thread i, I think i mentioned it a little bit earlier where um joe gideon is staging or presenting a staging of this song and the producers are in the room it's their first time seeing this version of the song that they've had added to this play and they the producers as they're watching this dance unfold kind of lean towards each other and say well there goes the family quadrant like there goes this gigantic piece of the audience that we're just not going to be able to get if we end up um using this dance the way that it's been choreographed i think they had also planned on using it in a commercial on tv and of course that's completely right out because gideon has has staged something that is not suitable for the airwaves to put it politely um and there are additional threads and pieces where it's not just the limelight although the limelight and the attention are a very big part of the equation it's also who chooses what gets to be amplified with the giving of their time and of their money and um, their willingness to produce specific and certain pieces of art. I think that it's, it's some of it is about the glitz and glam and about what it feels like to be on stage, but I think so much more of it is about what we choose to spend our time on into creating into great art and how that level of time and money and attention warps everything else around it. Joe Gideon has an ex-wife and he has a daughter with that ex-wife and he neglects his daughter pretty badly and his ex-wife is still very much involved with him artistically and makes it clear that he is still a pretty big part of her life as well and not just because they have a daughter together too and his gravitational pull is such that neither of these two women are ever really fully able to get out from under it. And that's the case for all of the girlfriends that he picks up from all of the shows that he's staging and directing and working on as well. And it's pretty clear that all of their careers are wrapped up in him too, because he's the center of this little 
economic universe that everybody else is giving their time and money and attention to. And that's something that's not just hurting him and hurting his soul. It's also harming all of these other people around him too, which is part of the reason why I was thinking of this movie when I first saw No Bears was just kind of that idea of what is the point of turning out very good art if you're going to harm a lot of people intentionally and unintentionally along the way? And I'm not sure that I have a good answer for that question. I mean, this is why uh, I, I find films that really grapple with this issue head on so fascinating because it is to make good art to you, you have to you have to love what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And, and there's nothing wrong with with loving that, uh, especially, you know, at, if you're a believer and take seriously the fact that the making of a thing is in a way sort of imitating our own creator who who, who makes things. Mm-hmm. Um, c- approaching our making from a position of love is very important. And you can't sort of do it as a, as a secondary thing. You have to be very interested in in the in the mechanics and the craft all of it has to be very important to you or else you're not going to make good art Mm -hmm. and excellence is you know it is its own reward but there is a cost yes and finding that line where you do want to love the work for its own sake uh love it because you love making good things um reckoning with the fact that that is going to mean you're going to have to make hard choices sometimes and sometimes the choices you make will be the wrong ones that i find i I just find that endlessly engaging and the scenes where in all that jazz the camera kind of lingers on the disappointment on joe's daughter's face when he says oh i can't do something with you i have to go to this other this other work meeting you know I, i can't be there for you and the joy on her face when she does get a little bit of attention from him uh, is just, it's, it's heartbreaking. And I think that's, you know, for all that I said that this film maybe does let him off the hook a little bit too much, though those scattered few moments I think do work really well too. It really does serve to highlight just what a jerk Joe Gideon is. And I, I wish the film had leaned a little bit more into that, but there's no denying that these moments in isolation are very effective on their own merits. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm curious to know, you, you mentioned that some of the moments are, are effective. Was there any of this art that you felt was worth some of that pain and some of some of the, the I don't know, the jerkiness, I suppose? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, dance dance isn't my isn't my forte. I don't really know a whole lot. Uh, about kind of anything about dance other than that oh that looks cool mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah that I'm, I'm a philistine in that sense i guess <laughs> um so i might not be the best person to ask that question of but i did find that scene that you mentioned earlier where he shows the producers like okay i've kind of reshaped this musical number that i wasn't liking before and in order to make it good i had to uh make it into something that is not going to be appropriate for families, not going to be appropriate for television. Mm -hmm. Frank Sinatra is not going to cover it or even touch it, (laughs) but it's going to be at least good. And I I think that that entire sequence, it is very racy, (laughs) to put it lightly, but it is also just the athleticism on display and the way that um, Alan Heim, the editor, cuts it all together, I think is very, it's, it's, it sparks, I guess. Um, And I think 
it does a good job of showing that um, Joe Gideon, for for his myriad other flaws, does produce good work, and that the the thrill in being part of or witnessing that good work is there's nothing else really like it. Mm, mm-hmm. And I really appreciated that. And I think a lot of that is down to Fosse as a choreographer, knowing how to um, place the camera, move the camera in these scenes and work with uh, his editor to cut it so that it has a rhythm and accentuates the movement rather than um, trying to cut around it or make shortcuts that a, a lesser director might have engaged in Mm, mm -hmm. yeah it's funny because i I keep coming back to that scene because i do feel like it expresses so much of what fossey's trying to get across with this movie there's another dance sequence a couple of scenes later that i think i like even more specifically um the dance scene where his girlfriend played by ann ranking and his daughter that was my favorite as well it's so good his daughter's played by uh elizabeth foldy and the two of them put on a dance number just for the sheer joy of it, and also to kind of distract him from the inevitable bad reviews that he's about to get from his latest directorial attempt. Um, His movie is opening that night, and he is hiding at home with his girlfriend and his daughter, and the two of them put on uh, the song Everything Old is New Again, and they dance to it up and down the stairs, across the apartment, Um, and it's just movement for the sheer joy of it, not because they're trying to one up anything not because they're trying to get one over on the producers not because they are trying to be the best because they don't know what else to be it's just art for the sake of art and it almost feels like a refutation of that scene a couple of scenes earlier because it is so joyous and and kind of pure in a way that nothing else in the movie really manages to reach and I mean, the interesting thing about that scene, though, is it's my favorite, too. I think it's the the choreography is really great. The joy is infectious. But what's interesting about that is Joe Gideon doesn't have anything at all to do with that. Yes. The his daughter and his girlfriend choreograph it, perform it, um, are the ones that are having the most fun with it. Um, He's kind of just a spectator, which. I guess kind of, you know, to to address the question of is all his jerkiness worth it? I mean, probably not. I, probably not because <laughs> the the greatest art is is created by someone by people outside of him, at least in, you know, from what we see in the film. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Fosse himself probably choreographed that number, but um just in terms of the the fiction within the film, uh I, I don't know how much of that is intentional on Fosse's part. Like, did he intend to give the the best musical number to people who aren't his stand-in? And tr- is he trying to say something with that? Unclear, but I appreciated it all the same. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's so joyous and it's such a bright spot in an otherwise deeply dark and, and frankly pretty ugly movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And I can't deny it. Well, thanks for showing me this this film. All that jazz is, uh, it's streaming for free on Tubi and Crackle. So if you haven't had a chance to watch it in advance of this episode, you can just hop on over to one of those websites and, and watch it there. No need to get a subscription or anything. It's just playing for your viewing enjoyment. Um, Next week, we are going to get apocalyptic. (laughs) 
We uh, so the latest M Night Shyamalan thriller is hitting theaters next week, and we are going to be offering our review of it. That uh, film is called Knock at the Cabin. It's a kind of a domestic thriller about a family in a cabin. The apocalypse may be nigh, and they are faced with some very hard choices as a result of that. So to pair with that for the Watchlist segment, I'm really excited about this one. We're going to talk about another ambiguous domestic thriller about the apocalypse, Jeff Nichols's Take Shelter from 2011. I'm very excited to catch up with this. Also, can I just say that I'm very curious to see where else M. Night Shyamalan is going to go in his vacation spots that have gone horribly wrong <laughs> series like we had the beach that makes you old now we have a cabin potentially at the end of the universe i'm i'm curious to know what the next vacation spot is going to be and if it can live up to those two i mean we'll see i'm mostly curious to know if the characters in this film are going to you know just flatly tell each other what their professions are and <laughs> what ways that's going to be plot relevant because that was a prominent feature of old that I didn't care for. So maybe he'll leave, he'll foreground the vacation part and leave the the exposition part in the, in the dust. Either way, we get Dave Batista. So hopefully, I'll be happy with it. I am curious to see Dave Batista play a a more dramatic role less less comedy it should be very interesting absolutely well listeners that'll do it for this week seeing and believing is brought to you by the christ and pop culture podcast network our producer is jonathan clausen who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen i'm your host kevin mclenathan i'm your co-host sarah welch larson and we'll see you next week on seeing and believing You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.